Good morning, and it's so good to be here. I haven't been in this part of the country in a long time, but uh, again, uh, I'm going to take you on a little trip today, if you don't mind. And I, I used to, I used to run, but now I can barely walk. But I want to, I want to take you back to 1968. As he, as as he was mentioning, in 1968, I met. Pastor Chuck and John Higgins, a friend of a lot of people here, and um, but I'm going to even go back a little earlier. In 1968, in the summer of 1968, I was hanging out at a, a taco place. Now, they have places called Taco Bell, but in those days, we had something called Taco Tia, and a Taco Tia was just a place where kids would go and hang out, and this was the day of of hippies, and we had nothing to do and nothing better to do. So I was hanging out at this uh, taco tia, and uh, a car drove up into the driveway of the taco tia, and somebody yelled out the window. He says, does anybody want to go to South Lake Tahoe? South Lake Tahoe was a very popular place. Everybody wanted to go there, and I was a young hippie, and I had nothing else to do. And so I volunteered, but so did four other guys. When, when he asked us to go to South Lake Tahoe, we said, why not? So we got in his car, and we started going down the road uh, to South Lake Tahoe, and then he volunteered some information, which we didn't ask him about. He just, he just wanted to tell us that he had just recently gotten out of prison, and um, we didn't ask him why. We didn't want to know why. So he, he said, I just got out of prison, and still to this day I have no idea why he was in prison, but we started off to South Lake Tahoe, and when we got there, we spent a little time there, and then a couple of hours later, he decided he wanted to go back to Riverside. So I think he got bored, and uh, he wanted to go back to Riverside, so we volunteered, we got back in the car, and we started back going to our hometown of Riverside, which is about three or 400 miles back. And then he said, um, or he pulled over a, a park, and at this park, he opened up his trunk and he pulled out a rifle. Now, I was a bad kid. I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done, but I wasn't involved in crime of that type at all. So he pulled out this rifle and he started sawing off the, the barrel. I'd seen all the movies, so I knew you, you, there's a reason you saw off the barrel of a, of a shotgun, but I had no idea what that was, and I didn't want to ask him or no. When somebody's got a shotgun and they're sawing off the barrel of that gun, you, you, you don't even want to know. You just ignore it. Then he does that. He cuts the barrel off, and then he says, I want to get some snacks. So he drove up the road a little bit, and he pulls into a, a fast food place or a little uh, place where there were stores. And he got, he first, he says to me, George, would you sit in my seat? And he didn't ask me why. He just said, would you sit in my seat? I'm going to keep the car running because I have no idea if uh, the police are after me. So I need somebody to sit in this seat so that we, it doesn't look like we've abandoned a car that he just stole. So... Again, we had no idea why he was doing this, but he drove, went into the store to get some snacks so he could, we could eat on the way home. 
But while he was in that car, in that store, we also heard sirens. And then maybe within five minutes, there were five or six police cars in front of the store. And then we saw the guy that had been driving us, the guy that it took us to South Lake Tahoe, was now taking us back to Riverside. We saw him with his hands behind his head, and he's being escorted by, by a police officer, and then another police officer with the, the rifle that he had in his hand. And my guess is that he was trying to rob that particular store. And again, I had nothing to do with it, so if, if you're a police officer, I'm, I'm, real, I'm one of these uh, pro-cop guys today, so don't worry about me. But uh, anyway, they, they, um, they, they had his, he, he was tied, he had his hands behind his back, and he was being escorted out by the police. So all these, there were four other kids, and they were really panicky, as you might imagine, and they didn't know what to do, and neither did I. And one of the kids says, well, let's just go up and tell the police that we were just in the car. But I, I, um, I grew up watching TV, like a lot of kids, and I, uh, I, didn't even, I didn't even give that a second thought. I thought, if they find out that we're with him, and he was committing a robbery of some kind, then they're going to accuse us, and you can go to prison even if you're not guilty of doing that robbery, just the fact that you're with him. So anyhow, we, we got back in there. We found a little uh, truck stop where they uh, found the truck driver, and he offered to give us a ride. Now, in those days, everybody was hitchhiking. Every, every off-ramp in California would have a bunch of kids with their thumb out, trying to get a ride. So this truck driver offered us a ride, and then he said, okay, if you're going to go back to Riverside, I'll take you so far, and then you, you're going to have to find your, the rest of the way. So we got in the car, and a couple of days later, we ended up in a city called Orange, Orange, California, where Disneyland is. Now, I don't know if you know California, but uh, it's a very compact area. And so in the city of Orange... The last driver we had dropped us off, and we're trying to get a ride to go to Riverside about 30 minutes away. But the um, it was kind of a hot day in, in California at, in late August or early September. We had no idea. We, we couldn't get a ride, but it didn't seem, seem all that promising. And then all of a sudden, a car pulled up to where we were standing, looking, trying to get a ride, and there was this... Uh, old guy, uh, he was. I think he was probably in his late thirties, maybe early forties. <laughs> and uh, so he pulled over and he said, "Where are you kids heading?" And we said, uh, "We're we're going to Riverside." And he says, "Well, by the way, we're going to go to Riverside. You, you want to go with us?" And then he says, "I'm. I have a trunk here filled with food. We want to, and we hadn't eaten in three days now, so we were starving to death." So he said. Uh, with a big smile, he says, if you want to go to Riverside, we'll take you there. But when you get there, we'll have a little lunch, and then you go your, your own way. So, And then when we got in the car with this big smile, he says, oh, let me introduce myself. My name is Chuck Smith. I had never heard of Chuck Smith. This was before the so-called Jesus movement. So I'd never heard of Ch uh, Chuck Smith or even the Jesus movement. And so, But he had this big smile, and he started telling me about the fact that he was a pastor in Costa Mesa, which was about 10 miles from Orange. And um, 
he wanted to ask me if I had heard anything about Christianity or if I knew anything about Christ. And I said, of course I do. I'm, I'm an American. I know about Christianity. And so I, <clears throat> I was trying to put him off and ignore him, but he was just really friendly and nice. Plus, he was going to feed me, so I, I had to be at my best. So he took me to Riverside, took me to a place called the House of Miracles in Riverside, California. And I was not even a believer at that time, but eventually uh, I met some other people who came to Christ through this very man, Chuck Smith, and had become Christians. And then I became the pastor of this new church, now this or new fellowship. In those days, in, in 1968, we um, the oldest Christian anybody knew. I was that was me. I was. Uh, I was now maybe 19 years old, and uh, so the name, if, you didn't, if in those days you didn't have a pastor, you had an elder. So at 19, I was an elder, and the reason I was an elder is because I was the oldest person anybody knew, except guys like Chuck Smith and his friends, John Higgins, that um, they thought I had, that I, since I knew the Bible, I had to be the pastor. So anyway, that's... That's how this whole story began. But eventually, um, I ended up at this place in the House of Miracles, and uh, they began telling me about Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. And I, I don't know why, but I was extremely antagonistic to Christianity. I went to a high school of 3,000 kids. I don't know what it was like where you are, but where I was, 3,000 kids was a lot of kids. And I never met one Christian my whole four years in high school, not one. I never met anybody that said, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Because we didn't have believers or Christians that, that openly admitted it anyway. Because it was, the, again, in the hippie days, it was, you could be a Buddhist, you could be a Hindu, you could be almost anything except you couldn't be a Christian. Because that was really not cool. Kind of kind of like it is today. So anyway, um, these, um, I eventually, uh, this person told me how to become a Christian, and it was so simple, I, I was amazed. He says, all you have to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ. And that verse we talked about earlier today, or was read earlier today, was the verse that was read to me. It said, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved and have eternal life. That was it. So I had always thought it would be real complicated. I thought it would be real difficult to become a Christian. But he said, all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. And he, he read it right there from the scriptures. And the scriptures say right now what it's always said. In Greek or Hebrew, it doesn't matter. It says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Now, there was a lot of other things you need to know if you're a Christian, but not to get saved. To get saved, all you need to do is believe in him and trust in him. So I did. And uh, that was again in 1968. And then eventually they were looking for a pastor and they asked me to lead this group of people. We'd have, we'd have 200 people a night would show up at our door looking for food or something else. And so while they, the, while, while they were there, we would evangelize them. We would preach to them. And if they made a decision for Christ, if they became a Christian, then we discovered something else that 
it's one thing to become a Christian. It's another thing to follow Christ. So it's one, I don't think it's, it's not difficult, challenging, or hard to be a Christian if you want to be, if you want to believe in Christ. But following Christ is another matter. Then I began to discover that a lot of guys who turn to Christ in faith choose not to follow him. And so I make a distinction between what I call a Christian positionally, that is somebody who believes in Christ, and a Christian practically. Now, have you ever met anybody who, who, they're living a life, a guy's being unfaithful to his wife, or really in a mean way beating his children? You know, he is not a Christian practically. He may have believed in Christ. He may have said, I believe Jesus Christ to be my Savior, but he never accepted Christ as his Lord. And so what, what happened from there on is uh, during these earlier days, I was a part of this ministry called the House of Miracles. And I, I grew up in a family with a bunch of kids, but I, knew, I couldn't cook, cook. So I couldn't, make, I couldn't make breakfast, much less dinner. So there were a bunch of these other houses where people were looking for help. And I was one of these guys, I needed help. I said, I need somebody to help me run our kitchen so that somebody makes some food. Because like I said, we had 200 people a night just showing up saying, we don't have anything to eat, would you feed us? And so I couldn't do that, so I put the word out that I'm looking for somebody to help them. But I had met this young lady at this other House of Miracles in Santa Ana, just a few miles away. And uh, so I, I asked these guys, can you help me find somebody who knows about making food? That kind of thing. Someone, someone to do the practical things that I knew nothing about. And it turned out to be my wife. Of course, she didn't, she had no idea that I was even looking for somebody, not just to be my wife, uh, to be, to run our uh, cooking ministry, but I was looking for a wife. Even though I was only uh, 20 years of age, I was ready to get married. And uh, so I met her, fell in love with her, and she shocked me by saying yes when I asked her to marry me. And so today, she was out with the ladies today. If, now, if you, if you were out there, you probably know how good she is. She does a great job as a Bible teacher. She's not just a good cook. We've been married over 50-plus years and in the ministry all these years. So, uh, But anyway, so that, that's what got me started in the ministry. And then I went from there to um, once we got, uh, once I got married, we went, uh, I went to Arizona, a place called Safford. Then I went to Eugene, Oregon, because this whole ministry called House of Miracles became the Shiloh Ministry. And then I went from Eugene, Oregon, to Northern Oregon, to Washington, to Idaho Falls, to Pocatello, Denver, Colorado, St. Louis, Missouri, and Columbus, Ohio. So I traveled the whole world, and that was just the early years of my life in ministry. And, but I, I had lots of experience, lots of opportunities. I, just, I couldn't find anybody that I didn't want to tell Christ about. I was just almost addicted to evangelizing people. And, but I also, there was, there was a day in 19, maybe 
1985, I, I, had a, I was a talk show host on a radio in Oregon. And the only reason I became a talk show host is they were always, uh, this was a very liberal, as Oregon is today, what we'd call woke. They were early woke people. And so they were always bringing these guests on their show that were real, um, I would consider them kind of empty-headed. And they were always uh, challenging Christians. So finally the station manager asked the question, is there anybody here that knows anything about Christianity? And nobody did. So I volunteered. I was kind of stupid, but I, I volunteered. So they asked me to go on the show to talk to them for 30 minutes a day, and then that turned into two and a half hours a day in which I would open up the lines and let people call me and ask me questions about what the Bible says about almost everything. Those were, it was the early days of every, the the pro-life movement had just started there in 1973, so I got involved in all of that. And uh, and during this particular time, I um, I I decided I'll just I'll just do all I can to lead people to Christ. And once I lead them to Christ, I want to help them learn to follow Him because the Bible says a great deal about what it means to live for Christ, to follow Christ, and so. One of the guy, one of the guests um, at at this time was Chuck Smith, so he came on to my show and I got to interview him, and he, he had so much fun doing radio that he he decided to buy a station in California and asked me if I would be the host of his show, so I went moved moved back to California in nineteen I think it was nineteen eighty six, but while I was there, Chuck Smith introduced me to. Somebody, somebody by the name of the Godsmickler. His name was, uh, if I can make sure I have it written down here. His name was, uh, but he was, he's the author of something called the Gods, a famous guy. And uh, Brother Andrew, thank you so much. That's, usually that's my wife's job. But anyway, uh, so Chuck says there's a guy named Brother Andrew, the Bible smuggler. Would you do a radio program with him? So I said, I'd love to. So when we got on the show, he says, uh, George, um, I know a lot of people in the world because he was kind of a famous guy. He knew he'd been everywhere. So he said, you know, the, the craziest people I know are Christians, and the craziest Christians I know are Californians. So would you consider working with me to take Bibles to Russia? And in those days, in 1988 or eight, nobody was taking Bibles to Russia because all you thought about with Russia is you go to, you give out a Bible, you go to jail. So he asked me if I'd go to uh, uh, Russia with him because I had a talk show. So I knew all the pastors in the area. So most of those pastors, because he asked me to go to Russia, I asked the other pastors to go with me. So we went in 1988, we did our first trip to Russia. And, uh, but he all, because he was a smuggler, he says, I never want to go to Bibles. If I can get them in legally, uh, I don't want to go. But so I want you to go and try to get them in legally so I can go back and do some other things. 
So the first trip we did, I think we ended up taking over 60,000 Bibles to Russia. And he told me, when you get there, they're going to threaten you. They're going to say, you can't do this and you can't do that. But we have a few tricks. One of the things was they printed these really beautiful Bibles for children. So when the guards would say, you can't bring your Bibles to Russia because uh, pornography, guns, drugs, and Bibles were really bad. And Bibles were the worst. So they said, you can't do that. And so he says, just pull out these children's Bibles and ask the guard if they have children. And I'd, so they always did. So I'd, I'd tell them about these children's Bibles. I said, would you like these children's Bibles? And they would say, absolutely. So I'd give them these children's Bibles. On one particular trip, I think we had a bus loaded with 60,000 Bibles. And because they were so intrigued by these children's Bibles for, for kids, that they would let me bring all these adult Bibles in. So even they, there's a group in Russia called the Orthodox Church, which is like the Catholics, but much more so. They, take, they consider Catholics to be Protestants. They think because a real Christian is Orthodox. Everybody else, they're, they're wayward. So, but even they were happy asking us for Bibles. So we took Bibles to, to Orthodox priests, to uh, Baptist ministers, anybody we could br- bring them to. So I started bringing Bibles there, and then eventually I met some other guys who were involved in smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe, and um, and then I did that. And then one day, all of a sudden, uh, you know, our church, Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, had 30,000 people attending that local church. So it would be a Sunday morning. It would be so, there would be maybe three or 4,000 in the main sanctuary. And they'd a lot of, because the weather is really good, they'd be out on the grass. So they would get 30,000 people a week into their services. But anyway, that that's kind of another story. But so uh, Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, had become friends with Chuck Smith. And he, uh, Bill Bright says, uh, Chuck, I, it's obvious you're a church planter. You can start churches. I'm an evangelist. All I can do is evangelize. But I, I can't do any follow-up. Do you know anybody willing to go and start churches in a place like Russia? Because I can go to Russia, Bill Bright can, because he says, if I just evangelize, but they don't want anybody to start a church. He says, do you know anybody willing to go to Russia to start a church? And Chuck says, you know what? I think I know that guy. So I got a call the next day from Chuck Smith asking me if I would go and start just one church in, to Russia. So we went to Moscow. And you've all heard of Red Square, right? This famous place where you you never evangelize on Red Square. The first thing we wanted to do was go to Red Square to evangelize because I'm from the 60s, so if they said you can't do it, I would say, well, let's do it. So we went to Red Square with uh, Christian rock bands, and the kids so loved the music that anything we would say, they would, like, listen to. So, but we met, we spent a week in Moscow evangelizing, leading kids to Christ, but we we had to leave to go back home because I was only going to be there for one one trip. 
And when we, when we got to the airport, all the kids that we had led to Christ in Moscow came to the airport, and they're all crying, especially the girls. They're crying like babies. So I called my wife, and I, she said, how's the trip? I said, well, it's almost too good because the kids are real responsive here because they had never heard about Christianity. Nobody knew anything. So I had to, when, what I would say, they would ask, what is Christianity about? And I'd say, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about what he did. If you believe in him, you can be saved. And kids were really excited about that, very responsive to that. So I told uh, these ladies, or these kids, uh, when we were trying to say the goodbye, they were crying and saying, you, you, you're never going to be back. And I, I said, why, why are you saying that? So she said, nobody, why would anybody come back to Russia? I, we can understand why you would come here cur- curiously, to uh, tell us about Christ, but you're not going to come back. So I told my wife this story. So when I got home, she had all my bags packed for my next trip. And I, d- I did that for 30 straight years. I did it until just a couple of years ago. So, But in those uh, 30 years, we were able to start 30 Calvary chapels in Russia. And I made a, you know, you... You can choose to be, you can call your church anything you want. Some churches are called Calvary, but many Calvary chapels are not called Calvary. So when I got to Russia, I said, you guys have a choice. You're, this is a Russian church, a Russian group. The word chapel in, uh, in Russia is about where you bury people. And so Calvary chapel translates into Russian is where you, where you kill people and then bury them. Calvary is where you kill somebody on Calvary, and then chapel is where you bury them afterwards. So I said, call us, call yourself anything you want. And they said, we want to call ourselves Calvary Chapel because that's all we've ever known. So we started the Calvary Chapel movement in Russia, and we did that until just a couple of years ago. And all of the churches we started are still there. I work, I talk to them almost every single day. And you know what I discovered in Russia is they believe exactly what we believe. If you, if you teach them that the Bible says that, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, then they say, well, then he died for my sins. Uh, it wasn't that easy for me. And I, again, in all of these places I was in, in America, it was harder to get people to believe in Christ than it was anything else. But in Russia, they just they simply accepted it. You know, today I consider a really important doctrine something called biblical infallibility. If the Bible says it, I say it's true. But in Russia, they never had a problem with that issue. They can't believe that anybody would say they're a Christian and not believe the Bible or that the words of the Bible are always true. So anyway, that that uh, that took me for almost almost 30 years, and we're, we still go over. In fact, I have a trip in January from some people here in Wisconsin to go back over to do conferences. And their conferences look exactly like ours do. And a lot of our kids over the years went to Bible college that we did here in America. So they would get a trip to go to a, uh, to a place and go to a Bible college we were doing. We started our own Bible college in Moscow. And a lot of kids graduated from that Bible college. And then they went on to be the pastors and leaders of those churches. So that was a... The story's not over. Uh, one of the things I'll just I'll end on with this note. But in in um, in my uh, you know at my age, 
you start forgetting things. So I started deciding I'm going to write a book. The last book I wrote, book I wrote took me eight years to write. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Because if it took me years to write, how long does it take somebody to read it? So this this new this new book I want I want to write is going to tell my whole story, the story I begin with in Riverside, all of those places I've been to, all the wonderful opportunities I've had as a Christian, and then all the thirty years I did in Russia, Eastern Europe, Belarus, and all the countries I was able to go to and help start churches because we we not able to start a church in Russia, we were able to start churches in Germany and other countries as well. I actually had the privilege of going to places like Mexico to share Christ. It was harder to reach people in Mexico than it was in in Russia because in Mexico they were just so uh, confused by their Catholicism, but in in Russia. Even though they called themselves Orthodox, almost everybody was an atheist. The official position was atheism. The state church was Orthodox. But anyway, so um, I'm writing a book now to cover all those years, from 1986 to the present. And uh, I hope I, I hope I get it done before I pass. <laughs> you never know for sure. So anyway. Uh, and if, if, if the story was interesting and intriguing to you now, hopefully you'll buy the book when it comes out. It's about 86 to the present. Because I was at, at Calvary Chapel in the earliest days of the so-called Jesus movement. And all of these wonderful things God did, he did with ordinary, defective, troubled people just like me. There were thousands of leaders in the Calvary Chapel movement and Calvary Chapel was just not the only movement. There were lots of, where the kids were real serious about Christ. And then, if eventually, if they, if they got good teaching, they were taught, as I was, that now that you're a believer, this is the way a believer behaves. So behaving is, doesn't make you a Christian. Even if you behave like a Christian, doesn't make you a Christian. But... If you don't behave like a, you're a Christian, you're, you're not going to have much of an impact on anybody else. So I hope you'll read that particular book, and thank you for letting me share with you today. God bless you.